Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, December 2nd. Hope all of you enjoyed a Thanksgiving weekend with your family and friends. I assure you, your weekend was better than mine in that I had to watch both my Detroit Lions and my Michigan Wolverines get slaughtered by their respective opponents. In the case of the Ohio State Buckeyes beating my Wolverines, I think it's like the 15th time in 16 years. I won't betray the converse or the exact details of my conversation, but let's just say head coach Ty Tucker was more than thrilled to uh, get another victory for his bus guys and happy to let me know about it as well. So congratulations to them. But we hope all of you are feeling nice and you know rotund after a well deserved Thanksgiving weekend. That gravy still oozing out of you, cranberry sauce out the wazoo, leftovers still in the fridge that you've had now four straight days, and you're like, ugh. Do I really want to eat another piece of turkey? Maybe if I put enough stuffing on it. Oh, but if I'm going to put stuffing, then I need to have gravy. And if I'm going to put gravy, why not have mashed potatoes? You know what? I'm just going to do the full thing. Uh, four days of that in the row. Hopefully you enjoyed that. You know, Obviously, you didn't have much tennis to enjoy. That's because both the professional tour and the college uh, scene wind da- wound down for the year. There is some junior tennis going on, although we'll save that for Colette Lewis. But... Not a lot going on right now. A lot of time to reflect. A lot of players either enjoying a quick off-season vacation or beginning their off-season workout preparations on social media. So fun to see all of these tennis players doing their different workout routines, enjoying their various days. A lot going to Iceland, some to the Bahamas, all of these different warm weather places, some getting married. There's this, there's that, all of the other things. And maybe we'll do a social media special later in the week. But we at Cracked Rackets were thinking, you know, what are we going to do every day with there not being many? results, if any, to talk about. Well, we decided, you know, there is still so much tennis to discuss. So much happened during the 2019 season. It's impossible to follow every match that happens every week throughout the year. Uh, There's so much to preview as we get ready to talk about and get ready to view the 2020 season that we are going to dedicate this mini break podcast to doing just that over the next month. We will be both recapping parts of the 2019, but more importantly, using that as a segue to begin our previewing of the 2020 season each day. uh, One of us, I myself, Jamie McDonald, Max Rothman, the Cracked Rackets, who are going to come on to preview some different aspect of the 2020 season, whether that be a specific player, whether that be a group of, you know, the next-gen cohort, the young WTA players, uh, tennis uh, Australia, all of these various different components of the game. But we'll look at one feature specifically. We'll focus on what we learned about that thing of tennis in 2019 and what lessons from 2019 we can apply as we look forward to 2020. 20, and that's how we're going to be doing it day after day, a different topic uh, at the 
host's discretion. So, you know, one day we could be talking American tennis. The next day we could be talking Estonian tennis. You really don't know what direction it's going to go. And that's half the fun of these Cracked Records podcasts, except I should say every Tuesday we will be continuing our College Contender Series, looking at the top 10 men's team to end last season, previewing their 2020 seasons, also having the coaches of those teams come on the Cracked Interviews podcast to talk about them as well. Uh, I'll preview who we're getting into at the end of the podcast. But on today's mini break to kick off the series, Ben Lewis of the Matchpoint uh, Canada podcast. Ben was kind enough to have me on the, his podcast with Ma- with Mac Mike McIntyre, excuse me, which they host and are now part of our fellow Tennis Channel podcast network. Uh, they were kind enough to have me on to talk a little Davis Cup last week. So I wanted to have Ben on to kick off our discussion this week. We previewed and recapped the many facets of Tennis Canada from Bianca Andreescu, Denis Shapovalov, FAA, all the way down to the Philip Pillowos, Gabby Dabrowski's of the world. Pro- recap again what we learned from 2019 Shapovalov and Drescu obviously so impressive down the stretch FAA so good through the first two thirds Pospisil coming out strong all of those different things and then giving our expectations of what we want to see coming you know from them this offseason and coming into the 2020 uh, season again it's going to be a different topic a conversation every day so I can't promise you exactly what we're going to be talking about Wednesday Thursday Friday but I can promise you listeners that you will enjoy these previews and with that being said Enjoy my conversation with the one and only Ben Lewis. Joining me now on the Mini Break Podcast, whether during your ride home or on the exercise bike, tennis fans will have certainly heard his Match Point Canada podcast with Mike, a crucial part of the Tennis Canada team. You're likely to find him tweeting out the latest Bianca Andrescu meme. And even though in Davis Cup his team just screwed us, ladies and gentlemen, it's Match Point Canada's Ben Lewis. Ben, welcome to the Mini Break Podcast. Well, I'm delighted to uh, to join you, and I, I feel especially grateful that uh, you're interested in speaking to me now that we are officially into the off season of tennis. Oh, of course! Look, there's no one I'd want to kick off this off season preview with more. Uh, so it's it's a thrill to have you. And you know, in the Thanksgiving spirit, we were thankful for the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Thankful for all of the you know embrace uh, that we've gotten from the tennis community. You guys were kind enough to have me on the podcast last week. I feel like you were ready to kick me off. I, I more than overstayed my welcome, but you guys were so kind to entertain all of my questions. So the <laughs> least we can do in that Thanksgiving spirit is bring you on today to talk a little more tennis. Canada. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's my pleasure. I, I'm happy American Thanksgiving to uh, everybody south of the border from me. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, in Canada, we call American Thanksgiving Thursday, but uh, I know it's a special <laughs> day, a special day for you guys. So I, I hope everybody had a great holiday and weekend. Do people try to finagle the day off, or are they like, "Oh, I'm going to celebrate just anyways"? Or is it pretty well established? Like, no, I, because you were. We talked about this earlier via text. It, Canadian Thanksgiving's in October. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the second weekend of October. Actually, is Canadian Thanksgiving, um, where and yeah, it's it's on a weekend, so we don't even get the the stat holiday, unfortunately. Uh, but sometimes it's I guess turned into a three day weekend. Um, but no, most don't take the Thursday off. Though I would maybe suggest that some people sneak the Friday off, and Black Friday has very much become a thing uh, throughout Canada. <laughs> Of course it has. That's half the fun, right? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I'm sure for you in October at your Thanksgiving, with te- in terms of tennis uh, thankfulness, you had plenty to be thankful at that point. But to move today, you know, we talked about this being our recap, our opening preview, our, and we'll do a little bit of recapping of 2019 to set the scene for 2020. And that's my way at a segue. Uh, you had plenty to be thankful for, but even now, you know, a month later into American Thanksgiving, you had those bonus results in November. Shapovalov making that final in the Paris Masters, the first Davis Cup final in Tennis Canada's history. Looking back at 2019, we talked about this a little bit when I came on your podcast, but it, setting the scene for Tennis Canada, it was a dream season, correct? It was uh, it was an unbelievable season, uh, an historic season. It felt like we were getting a little piece of new Canadian history kind of every month as things would go on. Um, whether, you know, most most of the history would have been set by Bianca Andreescu, obviously the, the first singles Grand Slam champion that we've ever had in this country. We've had doubles champions before, but never in singles. And, you know, that was absolutely remarkable. And, and Canada really took her on as, as one of her own, um, which, which was 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 lovely to see it wasn't really just her city or, or the Toronto area excited about Bianca Andreescu it was a country um, which is kind of tennis it, tennis is something that still remains I would say relatively niche uh, as, as a sport in this country but when you have players uh, who can have such an unbelievable run like Bianca did I think it inspires everybody to pick up tennis rackets and it's it's amazing that even post her U.S. Open victory, we're getting more things to just be excited about. Denis Shapovalov, as you mentioned, uh, just awesome to see him finally win an ATP title. Um, you know, early on in the season, the start of the season, and even last year, I know that was one of his major goals, finally win an ATP title. So it's kind of getting that burden off your back and feeling loose. Felix Ojealiasim, he had just this remarkable rise in the rankings early on through February, March. I mean, the Miami Open, he was absolutely tearing it up. And and then other just sort of lighter stories and forgotten players that suddenly emerge. You know, probably not many Americans really know about Braden Schnurr, but he even made an ATP 250 final in New York earlier in the season. Vashik Pospisil is a name we probably wasn't really in people's consciousness for a while, and then he had just an amazing run through the fall. So uh, everywhere you turned in terms of Canadian tennis players, some someone was producing something great. Uh, so it, it really maybe sets the bar a little too high for 2020. But uh, realistically, uh, I, I think even more great things are, are to come. You touched on so many of the names I want to get to, and Braden Schnurr for just, you know, Ben, as uh, at Cracked Records, we're big college tennis fans, so of course we remember his success at UNC and to see that translate on the Pro Tour the way it has. Obviously such a great start to his professional career, but the name you started with, and we'll try and touch on everyone as quickly and, you know, in as much depth as possible, but Bianca Andreescu is the story for Tennis Canada, obviously because she won her first Grand Slam this season, but it was just, you know, the way she did it, given the fact that, and for our listeners who who may not know, but she was a prestigious elite junior tennis player. She got up to the number three position in the junior ranking. She made the semifinals of Junior U.S. Open, of the Junior Australian Open, won the Orange Bowl, I think won the Petite As all the way back in the day. So she certainly had the street cred, you know, the credentials to make this sort of jump. But given the injury history she had had over the past, you know, 18 months prior to the start of this season, 
Did you expect this jump? I mean, no one could have expected this sort of <laughs> jump, but did you expect her to at least assert herself into maybe the top 50 this year? Well, it's interesting you ask that because, uh, you know, recently, I think a month ago, I had I had the chance to speak with her coach, Sylvain Bruneau, uh, who I, I certainly think should uh, deserve a lot of accolades that Bianca has had and has been able to produce. And I was trying to kind of gauge his thought on when he was determining Bianca could be in for such a, a special season. And... Uh, Auckland was certainly a turning point the way she started 2019. Um, you know, Auckland not being the biggest tournament of the year or anything like that. But uh, when you open season after dealing with so many injuries through 2018 to go to a tournament and kick off your year getting wins over Wozniacki and Venus Williams, I, I think really kickstarted things and just made her hungry for more and more. And uh, Sylvain Bruneau, I, I think he basically touched on the fact that he always felt she had the talent and the skill to get to this level, uh, top five and, and beyond. I think she can be a future world number one. He just didn't think it was going to happen so quickly and so soon. And when the results just kept coming, uh, Bianca wanted to keep pushing for more and more. Unfortunately, that led to a couple injuries through the season. But simply remarkable that she could get to number five in the world, number four at one point. And we're talking about a player who only got to play one match at the French Open, a player who completely missed the grass court swing and missed Wimbledon. It, it's really unbelievable. Uh, but, you know, I had the opportunity to watch her in practice at, at Rogers Cup in Toronto. The forehand is really <laughs> quite something to watch. Um, I, I think it might be the best forehand in the women's game right now. Uh, and she just has touch and feel that very few players have, especially at her age. And it's something that you almost can't teach uh, the feel she has for the ball. And she's only going to get stronger and better. So, uh, you know, obviously I didn't expect this. Nobody expected this. But uh, it, it really started in the first week of the season, which makes that a bit, a bit even more special, you could say. 42 and 7 on the year. The one result she probably kicks herself for in the context of everything else that second round loss to Sevastova in three at the Australian Open, second round after coming through qualifying the way she did. I mean, outside of that, you know, there are a lot of wins in between losses. That second round at the French Open where she withdrew, that was obviously a health concern. But then she yep. wins in Canada, she wins the U.S. Open. I mean, that when she played in 2019, more often than not, obviously, but she won. You know, that was you if she's on the court, she was going to win. She was that successful. Everything was clicking. You talk about the diversity of shot selection on the forehand, the fact that she can go Mach five, but then she can get defensive with it as well. She's perfectly comfortable going high elevation over the net, deep ball, topspin ball, slow things down get herself in a position where she can be aggressive. She'll also hit the swinging forehand out of the air. Oh, yeah, she showed so many positive skills. And the only thing that you kind of look back to, uh, or you, you when projecting to 2020, it's not even an on-tennis, uh, on the court, it's not a tennis thing. It's a physical thing, right? It's can she hold up? Because the way she plays, it's a very physical style of tennis. And she has had many nicks and bruises, many nagging injuries along the way. And she's so young I think she's what 19 years old at this point um yeah so I guess the I, the question I have for you is that that's the biggest thing she needs to address moving into 2020 and just moving forward in general right and it's not that on court physically she struggles it's just being a, in a place physically to where you can sustain that not just for two months but for seven months 
Yeah, well, and and it's good that you brought up that that match against Sevastova actually at the Australian Open because we had her on our podcast uh, following the Aussie Open. I think it was in March. And uh, one of her big focal points for her game following the Australian Open was working on her physical conditioning, uh, knowing that she could last in these grinded out three-hour matches. And obviously, Sebastova is a very crafty and plus impressive player. That's, that's not someone who's easy to face at, at any time, let alone uh, in the heat uh, in Australia at a, at a Grand Slam earlier in her season. But uh, she was looking to strive for more and figure out that element of her game that needed to improve. You look at the amount of tennis, I, I think that she played through portions of the season, um, probably following her win at, at Indian Wells, they would have been best to maybe dial her back and keep her from playing Miami. I, I think she needed a break at that point. Um, and she, she wanted to push on and, and then was forced to endure and play some more physical matches. Uh, Buskova, who she beat in the French Open, very long physical three-set match, you know, ultimately affecting the remainder of your season in terms of how you were feeling. So there were a couple spots in the year where timing did not work to her favor. Uh, but this season would have been a learning point for her and her team too. And I think she realizes as, as competitive as she is that she has to listen to her body a little bit more. It, it's unfortunate what happened at the WTA finals too. Uh, but Bianca was not the only victim of that, that hard court uh, over there in Shenzhen. Uh, it took out uh, more than uh, enough players, which was a, an unfortunate ending in, in my eyes. But uh, now that uh, they, you know, Sylvain Bruno and her team with Virginie, Tremblay as well, uh, recognize when Andrescu needs to dial it back, take a rest. Uh, I think they're going to manage the 2020 season a lot better and, and pick and choose in more tournaments. And, and we forget, actually, that she really essentially missed the clay court season as well. And uh, when we've spoken to her in the past, she, she says she loves playing on clay. So if you're talking about ranking points and things like that nature, some serious points if she's playing uh, her usual level of tennis, which we saw this season. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Uh, that is another question mark. I'm glad you bring that up because we didn't get to see a large sample size of clay. And it's not a question mark as m- in terms of I don't think she can perform on clay. It's just I want to see that full season mm-hmm. on the WTA circuit. I think we all want to see that sort of thing. And so that is going to be something to monitor as well. Um, but yeah, she's age 19. I mean, this sort of success <laughs> for youngsters, it, it just doesn't ha- it you, doesn't look like this. And the thing you sort of like most about her is against the biggest rivals, you know, 2-0 against Serena, 2-0 against Angelique Kerber, 2-0 against Caroline Wozniacki. Those were probably the players she grew up watching on TV. I mean, she's younger than me, but those were players I grew up watching, and I'm sure she was watching the same stuff. So the, and that she shows no fear in those biggest moments, you know, 1-1 one one against Pliskova, but that loss came when she 
she retired at the WTA finals. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, she lost that match to Osaka in Beijing, but that was a three-set thriller. She lost a three-set thriller to Halep at the WTA finals as well. Her best tennis comes at the biggest stages, and when you are a young player, that's the sort of thing that you want to see, that she she rises to the biggest moments, and that's just so promising for her and uh, she, all the other check marks being in her, you know, her skills, her physicality, the nature of her game. She checks out all those boxes. It was a tremendous 2019 for her, and I guess for 2020, what what would you set the benchmark for her? Expectate, maybe not expectation wise, but what you would like to see from her in terms of development hmm. moving forward. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I don't want to put a ranking number on it of uh, what she can do and what she can produce if she can get, get to world number one, which uh, I th- certainly think is attainable. Uh, first and foremost, expectation is a healthy season. Play every block of the season. Uh, schedule correctly. Get your hardcore season in early in Australia. Uh, get through that unscathed. Um, handle you know, handle the American swing as well in California, uh, get through that unscathed, have a full healthy clay court season, uh, where she can, you know, hit on all the premier events and see what she can do and and show other players that she, she has an all court game that's going to translate to the clay court surface. And and we'll see what she can do at the French open. And I, I don't know if it's me speaking a little too highly, but I would like to see one more Grand Slam in 2020. If she, if she wins another Grand Slam in the 2020 season, it is bar none a success if she doesn't win anywhere else. Uh, but I, I really think she has the game to win on all surfaces. Grass is also something that's going to be new for her. Uh, and she didn't get any of that experience in 2019. So that's going to be important as well. You don't necessarily need a lead-up tournament uh, before Wimbledon. We've had other players miss the lead-up and, and just prep on the grass and then and then transfer over and play Wimbledon. I we'll we'll see. You know when we get to that point of the season for 2020. But uh, yeah, how's an expectation of one Grand Slam and play every block? I think that's completely fair. I think one of the most interesting parts about Andreescu going into 2020 is that we still have so much to learn about her. You know, tennis is a three-surface sport, and we've seen her dominate one, but there's still a lot to be played on the other two, and there's so many other young, talented players, as well as players currently in their prime. I mentioned the Pliskovas, the Halops of the world, who still want slams as much as anyone. And so, you mm-hmm. know, they're ready to say, hey, youngsters, not yet. So I am very excited to see the way uh, she will look in and through, look during and throughout the 2020 season, hopefully a healthy season from her. One player I know uh, got the attention of Tennis Canada down the home stretch with his fantastic run, making, as I mentioned, that final in Paris, as well as helping lead that Davis Cup team to the finals. Denis Shapovalov, who goes 38-28 and 28 on the year, but more importantly, 22-10 and 10 down the home stretch from Winston-Salem on, gets the first ATP title of his career, ends the year ranked inside the top 20 at number 15. Uh, you look at the ATP Canadian men right now, they have three guys in the top 30, only Spain, France, and Russia can match that. I mean, did they get the Grand Slam champion of a Bianca Andreescu, of a Gabby Dabrowski in the past, of a uh, Layla Fernandez on the junior circuit? No, but this was a really good year for the Canadian men as well. Yeah, it's a fantastic year, and Denis Shapovalov, the way he opened his season and the way there was lulls uh, through the clay court season and on grass, which was really surprising to me. Uh, I would have been stunned if someone had told, 
told me he would finish 15th in the world, you know, back in June. Uh, it was really not trending that way at the time. Uh, he did put up a nice result in Miami early on the hard court, but he was outclassed there by Roger Federer in a, in a very one-sided semifinal. So you're seeing that and thinking, okay, there's obvious work to be done here. Uh, he has to take a, a step forward. And I, I think some of the Canadian fans probably watching through the first three, four, even five months of the season were wondering, What's what's up with Dennis? Is he for real? Because we were hyping this kid up probably dated back to 2017 when he had the monumental upset over Rafa Nadal uh, at Rogers Cup in Montreal, which, you know, all of our country watched. So he was kind of the next best thing, best thing when he pulled that off and then made a round of 16 at the U.S. Open. So people had that expectation of big things for Dennis. And we hadn't really seen it uh, through 2018. I, I mean, he kept steady in the top 30. And then, you know, the first half of the season, he was just kind of another top 40 tennis player uh, without big results outside of that Miami Open. So for him to just completely flip around the season, I really have to look to the coaching change. Uh, him bringing on Mikhail Yuzhny, a veteran player who I think just knows the ins and outs of the game. He obviously got Dennis to see and approach the game just a little differently when he was stepping on court. Uh, you know, you name those results in Winston-Salem, 22 and 10. That's just a drastic difference. Uh, so when I look at his 2019, I kind of separated into first half and second half and just the, this remarkable second half of the season. Uh, very good for him to go to Stockholm and get that first ATP title. Just beat everybody that you're expected and meant to beat and do it in dominating fashion you know, a bunch of straight set wins there and just utilize your weapons on court. We know he's such a, an incredible shot maker, not just on the forehand side. You know, you can look at highlight reels of that leaping one handed backhand. There are elements of his game that remind me a little bit of a Grigor Dimitrov. I, I don't know if you see it that way as well, but sometimes he just he plays a little bigger. Um you know, Grigor also a very athletic player. And Dennis's athleticism has significantly improved over the past couple of years. He's faster and more mobile on the court. Um, he just covers more ground overall. And, and, you know, he's limiting the unforced errors that were, I think, problematic in his 2018 season and for stretches of 2019. And he just looks like a whole new player. And, you know, I, I really think he's going to be one of those spaces that's, that's comfortably around that top 10 in 2020. I'll start with the Dimitrov point. It's very the athleticism for both of them always stands out. They're both guys who can move around the court so well. I would argue Denis Shapovalov may be even more explosive as an athlete, especially just the way the ball comes off his strings. I think his forehand just when he goes Mach 5 can be a little bit bigger uh, than mm -hmm. Dimitrov. I think Dimitrov may be a little bit more crafty, a little bit more spin on his ball. Shapovalov a little bit fat, flatter, but to be honest, I love the way Denis Shapovalov uh, has been attacking over these past three months. You're right. That is the biggest thing since Yuzny has come on board, the confidence he's playing with, even during the Laver Cup though he lost and during the doubles and just all through the last portion of the year. I mean, he played so well. He went big when he played the match that sticks out to me, that Alex Zverev match where he, even though he lost a set, he just dominated for three sets of tennis against Alex Zverev because Zverev wasn't willing to dictate. It was The match was played on Shapovalov's terms. Yes, he still sprays a little bit with the double faults. Yes, he can still have errors. Sometimes he goes for things where you're just like, what are you thinking? You know, <laughs> one out of every three jumping backhands is a make, but one out of every three jumping backhands is also 
also just a spectacular shank. Um, so it 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 was a happy development. He's making the sort of errors when he's missing that you want to see him make because he's a guy who when he it, it's almost like a Rublev and even uh, the obvious comparison FAA the way. They strike the ball. It's just different. I mean, the pace that they can create, you hear the pop sound in person. You're like, that sounds different than anyone else I've watched play. And you're right. It's that Dennis, even when he's on the run, because he is so athletic, he can go for things. He can be confident in his swings because his body is always in position now. Of course, that also leads to shanking. Um, but it also leads to just some incredible, incredible tennis. And that's a, why he was able to be as successful as he was down the home stretch. I mean, him ending the year in the top 15, do you think that changes the way he approaches this offseason? Because through the first two-thirds of the year, as you mentioned, Ben, I mean, this was a, a terrible season for Shapovalov, and then it, the way it turned around so quickly, how do you think he resets, refocuses heading into 2020? And what, if you were him, would you focus on improving uh, the most next? That's a, that's a good question. I, I don't think there's going to be a, a rapid change in the offseason for the simple fact that I, I really think there has been just a switch flipped mentally uh, with the new coaching change alone with Mikhail Yuzhny. So I, I think he just has a brand new focus and, and approach when he is on court now, which is going to serve him so well in 2020. One thing I think that's going to be very beneficial, uh, we saw it in Davis Cup. He was really solid in doubles. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not saying he needs to play a ton of doubles in 2020, and, and most elite singles players are not really spending their time uh, on the double side of things. But if he can clean up his net game just a little bit more, uh, he's such an aggressive offensive player when things are dialed in, when the serve is dialed in, and it, just that serve-forehand combination it, is so powerful. We even saw him push Rafael Nadal at that Davis Cup, uh, the second set, especially long, grueling 7-6, and he was the one dictating play, dictating pace, and, and attacking ruthlessly. So if he gets a little more feel and strength at the net, it's certainly an area of his game that has improved over the past couple of seasons. Uh, I think that's something to focus and work, in, work on on the offseason. Um, he also has the ability to dig in uh, conditioning-wise with, you know, 15-plus shot rallies. Not everything has to be a 4-5 shot rally and pull the trigger for the winner, uh, depending on who you're facing. You, you know, I, I think most of the players in that 30 to 70 range, he has the shot making ability to just overpower them. So in that case, you want rallies short. But if he's playing a top player in a, you know, a Medvedev or, or God forbid, a Djokovic, which he, you know, is not quite there yet, I, I think the conditioning and lengthier rallies are, are going to be a challenge that he's going to have to overcome and learn and get better on the fly. Uh, so that's what I would say is, is a focal point along with the uh, net play, which I think he could certainly improve. But uh, this is probably the best we've seen in terms of his tennis career on the ATP tour just these past three months, I would say. Yeah, and what I like most since Wimbledon, there have been no back-to-back losses. He he may have lost second round, but he always gets at least one win a week, and that's the sort of maturity development where you say, yeah, you know, I, you, as you mentioned, I can overpower anyone 30 to 70. Even if I'm not playing my best tennis, I can still find a way to win. That's the sign of a mature, you know, consistent top 40 presence. The Philip Kohlschreiber, not saying Shapovalov has the upside of Philip Kohlschreiber, I think it's much higher than that, um, but the Kohlschreiber 
members of the world make their living off of that first round win, and that's mm-hmm. the difference. But you know, that's the first step you have to get by, and so that he's making that sort of jump. That's huge from him. I, I, the other player I want to talk about a little bit, and then we'll do a rapid fire for players. You can give me your quick takes, but the guy who through those first two thirds while Shapovalov was struggling was not only the breakout player, you know, for Tennis Canada, and this was pre-Andrescu, you know, Andrescu had won Indian, uh, Indian Wells, Miami, which one, I don't even remember. I think she won Indian, Indian Wells. Wells. Um, <laughs> yes. Yep. Uh, yep. But this was the player on everyone's mind was Felix Ogier-Aliassim, who obviously started the year just on fire, uh, making the finals uh, in, I believe, South America, making that semifinal in Miami as well, just looking mm-hmm. so good on both hard court than the clay. Then he makes a final on grass. I mean, for FAA, his first full year on the tour, he ends the year inside the top 30 as well. He is going to uh, start the year right around number 21. Uh, Youngest player to break, I think, the top 200 since Nadal. Youngest to break the top 25 since Leighton Hewitt. I mean, everyone expected stardom from young FAA, but that it happened this quickly, this fast. I know Yannick Sinner came on strong at the end of the year, but this was, and and Tsitsipas was great, Medvedev was great, but this was the breakout star of the year. Yeah, I uh, you know this. I don't think it's my Canadian bias agreeing with you. Uh, you, you just look at the results and the t- the season that he put together, and uh, it really kickstarted in Miami. You, you pointed at that semifinals, and even if you look at that semifinal that he lost, and John Isner uh, got to that final, and, and then of course injured his foot in the final against Roger Federer. Felix twice had opportunities to win both of those sets that went to tie breaks, and his serve let him down, and that very much felt like a mental I'm a teenager in the moment with a chance to make a Masters 1000 final and I got very tight and you know we can expect that type of thing obviously the mental game is a big element of tennis uh, but you know he very well could have been playing in a Miami Open final this season he was quite quite close and I, I look at a few of his wins just reflecting on that tournament specifically and beating Every different type of player. I mean, he got through, after getting through qualifying, gets through Kasper Ruud in three sets, gets through Martin Fuksovic, very athletic, difficult player in three sets, then moves over to, uh, to Hercatch, who is another young, very solid player, then beats Basilashvili, one of the hardest hitters on tour, then Borna Chorich, just a lot of really high-quality wins against different types of opponents who have different game styles. It's very impressive to me. Um, I, I think the word that comes up the most when Felix is discussed is athleticism, uh, but he's a shot maker too. I think his back end significantly improved in 2019. If you look at some of his matches in 2018 where he was, you know, obviously finally kind of a bit of a mainstay on the tour in in some senses, you could see that was the the liability in his game was the backhand was not yet a weapon. And, and now it is. He can produce passing shots on the run from difficult angles, forehander back inside. He can serve big. And the grass court season, phenomenal for him. Uh, it's easy to forget, but he was in the finals in Stuttgart and, and playing a tough match with Matteo Bertini, who's we know that the season he had. Um, pretty good result at Wimbledon. And all this being said, there were spots of his season that he missed too. He didn't have the opportunity to play the French Open. Uh, so what will we get from Felix when we have a full and complete season playing all four Grand Slams? Uh, I, I really think, you know, we've heard 
other fellow players, whether it's veterans like Nadal thinking he's a player of the future, Stefano Tsitsipas, who was joyous after finally beating him late in the season because Felix was such a thorn in his side. Everybody kind of marvels at this kid's game. And uh, I, I really think he's another player. I, I'm not going to project him for top 10 next season, but uh, I know his goal for next season. He told... Uh, our guest from last week, Arash Madani, his his goal is multiple titles, and I wouldn't put it past him, given that he played three finals this year. Yeah, I mean that he rose to number twenty one in the world despite not qualifying for the Australian Open, not playing the French Open, losing first round at the U.S. Open. That's a testament to how good he was everywhere else, and he made that final at the five hundred uh, in Lyon early in the season, knocking out as you mentioned Fonini, Garin, Munar. These are all you know those two being his peers uh, before losing in the final. He made that semifinal in Miami, but then the finals in Lyon uh, were as you mentioned. He knocks off a couple of good players before losing to pair, then switches surfaces, makes that final in Stuttgart. I mean, yeah, the, I think it was Louisa Thomas in her piece about him in The New Yorker who wrote about it. He's just so steady. Just there, there's very few holes, except for maybe the serve, and he's had cases of double faults, which she documents yeah. as well. The ones that come to mind, obviously, that Isner match in Miami. Uh, uh, you know, he's had that sort of thing happen a couple of times. I think Chilich in D.C. was another one. Um, mm-hmm. But that's okay. A, when the biggest criticism you have of someone who's 18, 19 years old is, well, you know, they need to have their serve get better. That means, oh, wow, they must be doing everything else really well. (laughs) And that's, you know, so important in the game is to do everything else. But it's just a testament. This kid, he's 6'4 now, quietly. I mean, a gentle giant, but just so, you know, broad shoulders, still can fill out, but just the basic physicality, his ability to move so well across three surfaces. I mean, again, much like Andrescu, every check mark, every box you have, he checks off. Yeah, uh, well, it's interesting, you know, looking at Leon or the Rio Open where he plays the finals too and kind of getting your clay court season really going there is he was playing a bunch of like veteran clay quarters. Beating Pablo mm-hmm. Cuevas in the semifinals. I mean, Cuevas is a very seasoned player who knows – who knows how to win a court match against a lot of players. That's that's a dangerous matchup for for most guys, you know, inside the top 15, let alone a young kid who is arriving there, um, still just had recently broke into the top 100 and, and top 80 from there. Uh, but wins like that are really, really impressive. Wins over Fabio Fanini. I, I know uh, he can, you know, have his meltdowns on the court, but still excellent clay court player and you're beating veterans uh with your game already at 18 uh and now 19 years old look you mentioned the serve i mean what was what was rafael nadal's serve at, at age 18 uh yeah. djokovic <laughs> djokovic yeah. what was djokovic famously i i can't hit for you know the second serve was a struggle right so if you're if we have to nitpick and and pick on service issues and you know untimely double faults when he is this young that really speaks to uh the volume and and talent and breadth of skill he has in every other element of his game i I would mention i I think a net presence can be developed for him as well similar to shapovalov felix doesn't seem quite as comfortable approaching net as often so i'm sure that's another element that that he'll be working on i don't know if he's going to fill out more or not that's that's interesting that you raised that uh atp has him as the website would have him at 64194. He's very lean and strong. Uh, so I'm curious if we see a, a change to, to his body uh, over the next couple seasons. 
Well, likely he'll turn 21, win a slam, and be like, oh, I can have a beer too. And then just <laughs> inevitably, yeah, a couple yeah. of pounds. Uh, you mentioned that net game. The thing I love about Canadian tennis players and for, uh, being someone from Michigan, it's something that resonates with me. You know, from Shapovalov, FAA, Andrescu, Rayonich, Pospisil, Schnur, uh, you know, all the way down. Indoor tennis, you learn how to move forward. You learn how to come to the net. And FAA, you know, much like those others, has no fear of moving forward. And so you would like his first volley to get a little bit better. I think sometimes he's caught guessing way too often. He's not, or, you know, he isn't trying to read beforehand. He's just trying to guess where you're going to go as opposed to reading, you know, the sort of instincts that come with much more match experience. But he's not afraid to move forward. And given how strong the rest of his game is, that's going to be a skill that if he develops will be very, very effective for him. All right, I, I, I've I've been you know taking more of your time again than I expected. But last oh, thing that's for okay. you, I'm having fun. Oh, I appreciate that. But we will do rapid fire of takes. I'm going to throw a name at you as take as long as you want, but just give me your thoughts on this player. You know, both post 2019 heading into 2020. Sounds good. Sure, sounds fun. All right, Milos Raonic. Milos Raonic, please be healthy would be my three words for Milos Raonic. Um, you know, it's it's as simple as that and at the same time as difficult as that. One thing that, that strikes me as quite fascinating about Raonic is I, I do think he's candid and honest. And he said he felt like earlier on in the season in 2019, he was playing better tennis. If that is true, um, what is Milos's ceiling? In this game, there's wear and tear and mileage on this body that has given him trouble through so much of his career. It's it's really hard to say. Uh, you know, he set up he set up rehab in Chicago to get his body right and, and didn't play Davis Cup. Obviously, the right decision there. Um, but I, I know through basically probably 80% of the season when he was playing, he was probably p- playing through pain. Uh, but if you looked at the start of this year, you, you thought maybe good things were on the horizon the way he played in Australia. So my, my words would be, please be healthy. And he can be one of those consistent, dangerous threats to get to the second week of a Grand Slam. I completely agree with you there. All right, next one. Vashik Pospisil. Vashik Pospisil. Top 25 is possible for Pospisil, is, mm. is, my, is my evaluation. Uh, again... Uh, easy to forget that he got to a career high uh, of number 25. And I just think the game itself uh, on the ATP Tour is stronger now than it was four or five years ago. For him to have uh, not only the run in Davis Cup over that week of tennis, but the run prior, winning a couple of challenger events, getting the round of 16 in Shanghai, beating a player like Hachinov, round one of the U.S. Open, with how big his serve can be with his feel at net and with his forehand wing, I think he can get back into that top 30 as long as his body holds up. But it's almost like he's feeling better now post-back surgery, getting that herniated disc repaired uh, from the front end of 2019. He seems to be moving better. Um, I, I hope I'm not coming across as a homer when I say I think he can get back to the top 30. Uh, but yeah, I, I will say top back to that career high ranking of 25 is possible for Pospisil, is what I'll say. Another guy who took advantage of indoor tennis season. And I yeah. always appreciate that. Um, all right, Braden Schnur. Braden Schnur. Little more development needed 
Um, you know, he did crack the top 100 this season. Uh, he showed nice glimpses at the New York Open. Obviously, was was a fantastic week, best week of his career, bar none. Uh, and then kind of hit some roadblocks after that, where I want to see him play a little more methodical on the court. Sometimes I feel like he's thinking a little too much. Uh, he looked a little uncomfortable when Wimbledon, for example, this season. Uh, you know, he, he needs to start 2020 a little bit on the challenger circuit. Uh, he finished the season nice, actually, in Charlottesville. He was losing that final to Vashu Pospisil. So begin at the challenger circuit, build up the confidence, think a little less on the court, use your weapons, which is mainly the forehand. And I think he can be kind of solid top 100 player. Uh, I mean, the serve, the forehand, they're big, they're weapons. So, yeah, that can play with anyone. All right, one of my irrational uh, beliefs of the 2010s and a guy I will stick with until his career is over, Philip Pelluo. Your thoughts? Philip Pelluo. Um, you, you don't get very far in tennis if you can't hold serve, unfortunately. Uh, and this, I think, has plagued Philip Pelluo. For the bulk of his ATP career, Here's a, he was a great junior player. If there's a player he should model, and we had a chance to speak with him on the podcast, I want to say a bit over a year ago, actually. The player he should model is David Goffin. Take the ball early on the rise, great return game, uh, but he hasn't been able to find a way to hold serve. So it's just so difficult for him to, to stay competitive week to week if you can't cover up your serve which is an obvious flaw in his game uh so unfortunately i i don't see philip as a player who can get maybe further than inside that top 200 maybe top 150 range it's just so difficult if the serve isn't isn't reliant for you to just be able to hold it yeah i mean look when he made four grand slam finals in one junior season i was all in that was what like 2012 so yep. I think or 2011, you know, I was like 17, 16 at the time. So I was just all in on that. But yeah, it, it's been the weapon again, a guy lacking a weapon. And it, it's, it's been tough to watch because sometimes you can just see him struggle with a lack of confidence, despite all of the talent he clearly has in terms of striking a ball, crafting points physically. Uh, so yeah, I would love to, I mean, he's 25. So, I, you know, you're getting to the point you got to make that jump. Uh, if you want that chance to be, you know, around challengers, around Grand Slam qualifying, get that chance to drop, jump, as you mentioned, into the top 150 play ATP events. So big year 2020, I will be watching. Um, all right. Uh, of this group, all of these college guys, just for our listeners who may be crossover college tennis fans, Justin <laughs> Boulez of Ohio State, Josh Peck and Ben Seguin of UNC, Alexis Galarno of NC State. What are our fans, should they expect to see from them? Um, you know, Alexis Galarno is, is a name that, that's had a nice summer, um, you know, playing through that circuit in Gatineau and playing a few of these, these challenger events through, through Canada. He, he seems to have a nice developing game that, uh, I, I think could, could certainly go places. Um, and he's still just 20 years old. We're, we're not talking about a player who is 25, like Philip Pelliwo and who has kind of been slogging it out the past four years, trying to gain ground and not finding like you're really getting anywhere. Uh, so Gallarno would probably be my pick out of the group there to maybe make some inroads this season. Uh, still being just 20 years old, he's a Quebec product. 
Uh, he has a nice game. He kind of has a fiery attitude, which I like, a lot of passion on the court. Um, you know, I, I can't say I've watched a pile of his matches, but from what I've seen, uh, I, I like sort of the passionate fire on court. You can tell he's hungry for more. Uh, so, you know, he's still outside the top 500, but I, I could certainly see him making a couple of leaps this season. If he can get top 300, that's, uh, that's a nice result. And, uh, you know, I love the college system too. Uh, so it, it would be great to see him go somewhere. Absolutely. All right. Two juniors for you, Liam Draxel and Layla Fernandez. What should, what does Canada have in the pipelines beyond, you know, Andrescu, Shapovalov and FAA? I think Layla for uh, Layla Fernandez could be a potential phenom. I, I really do. Uh, we, we've been tracking her for the past couple of years. You, you know, she's a junior. She can play on all surfaces. Uh, she, she had a fantastic summer this past year in 2019 um she did the chose to do the itf circuit and had a lot of success you know winning a doubles title winning a singles title and got no in quebec as, as well and you know really all i can say as a knock on her and it and it's really not is she's just a little small she's someone who could probably add a bit of size uh we had a chance to speak with her when she was at rogers cup in toronto and, and just up next to us up close. Uh, she's not as big as these other tennis players, but she's 17 years old. Uh, so there's plenty of time to, to fill out, I, I think, do some gym work and add a little strength and muscle uh, to the lower half too. And I, I really think the game uh, looks pretty effortless for a 17-year-old. She has beautiful ground strokes. She plays uh, a very you know nice aesthetic game, which I like. And uh, she can play fast and hard too. So that would be certainly a player to watch for. You know, I'm not going to call her like a, an Amanda Anisimova, you know, necessarily. But I think give it a couple seasons and she's someone who will be top 50, could be top 25, could be top 15 and so on. Uh, she is one of those special talents. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I completely agree, by the way. Junior French Open champion. I think she's ju- world junior number three-ish right now. I mean, just tremendous season from her. But last question for you. Is Gabby Dabrowski the ultimate power broker in Tennis Canada? <laughs> you could call her that. Uh, interestingly, Gabby Dabrowski said for 2020 she wants to try a little more singles, uh, which which is could be interesting to watch. She wants to test the waters there in terms of her singles game. If you've For fans who've had a chance to watch her in doubles, she brings this electric energy. It just feels like she's everywhere on the court all at once, which is a special dynamic feeling to have when you're playing doubles and the great doubles players have that uh another name that kind of stands out when i watch her play doubles is siniakova she's just everywhere and it's it's impressive to see dabrowski has that presence at the net uh you know she knows how to finish she has a good forehand she has a good serve uh singles i think is maybe turning things mentally to just structuring points differently when you you've been playing doubles for the bulk of your career the past few seasons and then step back into singles it really is a different mind frame it is a totally different game in terms of how you have to think about winning points uh very difficult to serve in volley in the women's game we don't really see it very often at all uh so that's not really a tactic she could utilize whereas she's getting so much done at the net in doubles so that'll be a difficult transition for her i'm not setting a high bar in terms of what she can do in the singles court but i i certainly would love to see her win another grand slam doubles title whether it's mixed or whether it's with partner julie zoo uh she's always fun to watch for for doubles lovers 
Hopefully you'll get a Shapovalov Dabrowski mixed doubles, best of both worlds. Oh, that would be a lot of fun. And I didn't I <laughs> didn't I say Dennis needs to improve his neck game? So exactly. what better what better opportunity? No, exactly. Get some practice before the twenty twenty Olympics where they could be playing together. That's a very realistic pairing, right? Yeah, you're right. Uh it's a very realistic pairing. Um and then I, I would very much expect Vashik and Dennis could be teaming up for, for the doubles as well on the men's side uh for Canada. I think Honestly, not saying they would be a favorite, but that's a team that could definitely do some damage. No, oh, it's going to be a fun thing to monitor. Twenty twenty should be a really fun season for tennis Canada. Well, Ben, this was a great home and home. I mean, this is something we should definitely be <laughs> thinking about doing throughout the twenty twenty season as well. And for our listeners again, uh, who want to hear more from you, uh, can you give them a little plug for where they can find your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can find me on Twitter at Ben Lewis. SN590, and then we're the uh, Matchpoint Canada podcast. We are thrilled to have recently joined the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and then we're Tennis Canada's official podcast. So you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can, C A N in capital letters, and uh, we love to be interactive with fans there. Uh, you know, some people have asked, are you just a Canadian tennis podcast? You only talk about Canadian players. Not true. We, we try and cover everything, um, you know, and, and touch on what Canadians are doing at the same time because most of our listeners are from there. But we will give you a, a piece of everything if uh, you join us. Uh, so check us out on Twitter. We're also on Instagram uh, if you guys are interested in that, too. Yeah, of course. And again, welcome to the Tennis Channel Podcast Network family. It's great to have you guys. Uh, again, the, the whole idea is to expand that tennis conversation. And we at Crack Rackets all appreciate what you and Mike are doing over at the Match Point Canada podcast. So, Ben, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, anytime you want to come back on our podcast, just let us know and we'll set something up. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Yeah, of course. Take care. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matchpoint Canada's Ben Lewis. Ben, again, in their podcast, a recent addition to our Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are so thrilled to have them. Their input uh, so valuable to our tennis community. So really thrilled to get the chance to do that home-and-home home series with them, get the chance to work with them. Hopefully that's something we'll be doing a lot more moving forward as well. Uh, look, again, this is something where it's a new thing we're trying at the mini break. We're going to preview different aspects of the tennis world. Look forward towards 2020. If there's anything you listeners want to hear in particular, we are open to suggestions. So please just let us know on at our website, crackedrackets.com, or you can contact us through our various social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at Cracked Rackets. Leave a message. Leave a five-star rating. Leave a little review saying, hey, I like this conversation. I, want you, I wish you talked about this more. Or, hey, don't talk about this. Talk about this instead all of these different things your input so valuable to us don't worry it's not just the 2020 season we're previewing we've got a lot of other stuff going on at cracked rackets right now i mentioned our college contender series earlier last week we had the chance to talk about unc got the chance to talk to coach unc coach sam paul uh we've also had the chance to talk to coaches and talk about the teams from tcu mississippi state usc as well this week we're talking about the baylor bears and talking to the one and only baylor head coach brian bullen so obviously three thrilled to do that. I believe that'll be coming to you listeners tomorrow, so be on the lookout for that. On the GSP front, 
Best of the Decade series back in action, a three-part recap of the 2010s in American tennis with my friend Jonathan Kelly. Great to get him back out of his hiatus. Part one of that podcast released on Friday, two and three to come later in the week, so be on the lookout for that. A shout-out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f*** of an editing job to do, as always, to keep you listeners up to date on all things going on in the tennis world. A huge thank you again to Ben for taking the time to come on this podcast. Go check out his podcast, Matchpoint Canada, part of our Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, leave them a rating, leave them a subscription. I know they would appreciate that as well. But for my co-host, Ben Lewis, for our super producers, Max Lingner and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire teams at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.